Friends, we are in our second sermon in the series of Exodus. Uh, we're looking at Exodus 2, verses 11 to 25. So let me pray for us again as we prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Father, open our hearts to your truth. Grant us uh, eyes to see your glory. And Father, grant us hearts that are soft to your Word. Help me, Father, as I Bring your word to your people this morning, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently, my, one of my sons asked me a pretty interesting question that I didn't really have the answer to. So he asked me, so Dad, do the buttons on traffic lights work? Or he asked me another question related to that. Do the buttons, you know, do the closed-door buttons in lifts work? You know, so I, I didn't have a ready answer to him, so I did a bit of research and found that in, in many, you know, on many traffic lights and in many lifts, the, the buttons don't actually work. They're non-functioning. And I, and I realized that actually, there's actually a name given to these buttons. They're called placebo buttons. Placebo buttons. So placebo buttons are buttons that you can push, but they don't really do anything. No, and, and placebo buttons are put there to give the user an illusion of control. You know, they, they make us think that we are actually doing something when we're not. <laughs> you know, so so why, why the need for placebo buttons on, you know, in lifts, on traffic lights? You know, why do placebo buttons make us feel better? Well, it's because none of us likes to wait. Right? We, we hate being stuck at the light, we hate being stuck in the lift, uh, we hate being stuck in traffic, we hate waiting for the taxi, for the bus, for the train, for the plane. You know, we hate long queues. You know, none of us likes to wait. You know, we like the idea that we are in control and that we can actually move things along. So having a button that we can press makes us think that we can do that. You know, we live in a fast-paced culture used to minimize waiting and enabling Instant gratification. You know, we eat fast food, we stream movies and TV shows on demand. You know, when, when, I, was, when I was growing up as a kid, you used to have to wait for your TV show, right? It would come on once a week, and you wait for the time, and if you miss it, tough, right? But now, of course, you can stream your show whenever you want it. You know, online shopping promises speedy delivery, and we get annoyed by even the slightest delay, Basically, we want to get whatever we want, whenever we want. You know, waiting is hard for us. You know, it seems as though life is put on hold when we wait. You feeling a bit uncomfortable now? <laughs> you know, we get impatient, restless, and frustrated when it looks like nothing is happening. And there's nothing we can do about it. Well, in, in his, there's actually a book written about waiting. It's entitled Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World. Uh, and, and the author, Jason Farman, says, we flee from waiting whenever possible because waiting puts us in positions of powerlessness. I think that's so true, isn't it? Waiting puts us in positions of powerlessness. That's why we don't like waiting. And indeed, the, the hardest thing about waiting is the fear 
that what we are waiting for may never come. You know, as, as the famous play Waiting for Godot portrays it, you know, Godot never shows up. We fear that waiting is all that there is. We end our lives waiting. So I put it to us that what makes waiting worthwhile is the reliability of the thing or the person whom we are waiting for. And this passage really is about the reliability of God, whom we wait for. God is good, He's wise and true to His Word. You know, as it says in Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Or as a popular Christian song puts it, you know, those of you who know this song, you're probably dating yourselves a bit, He makes all things beautiful in His time. God is never late. You know, he works in His time, not ours. And I think maybe that's why sometimes waiting is so hard, because God works in His time and not ours. He calls us to wait for Him, for our times are in His hand. And this really is the big idea of our passage this morning. The faithful God will keep His promise to redeem His people in His time. The faithful God will keep His promise to redeem His people in His time. Now, if you want that big idea kind of expressed more succinctly, uh, it's God's plan, God's way. God's plan, God's way. God's plan will be done God's way. And, and Moses himself had to learn this difficult truth about God. And I pray that this passage will also help us to know this God, to trust Him as we wait for Him. So point number one, God's plan cannot be done our way. And the next slide will show the outlines of our sermon. Let me read from verses 11 to 15. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So between verse 10 and verse 11 in our passage, 40 years have passed since the birth of Moses. And in that, in that time, in those four decades, the Israelites continued to labor under Pharaoh's heavy yoke. You know, 40 years were spent waiting and waiting for something to happen. You know, now that Moses has grown up, you know, he's 40 years old, surely we can expect God to do something now. You know, as Pharaoh's grandson, Moses would have enjoyed the privileges, the luxuries and comforts of growing up in the royal family. You know, he would have received the best of what Egypt had to offer. But although Moses may have lived and looked 
like an, like an Egyptian, his heart was with his people, the Hebrew slaves. Verse 11 says he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So, so this passage tells us that Moses identified himself not with the Egyptians, but with the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting how Moses himself describes what he did. Right? You know, he says Moses went out. You know, that, that verb, went out, it's the same Hebrew verb used to describe the Exodus. Like in, in Exodus 12, verse 41, it says, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. You know, by identifying with Israel, Moses was embarking on his own exodus. He, he was physically still in Egypt, but his heart left Egypt. He went out from Egypt by identifying with the Israelites. He was leaving Egypt behind. You know, Moses took Israel's God to be his God and these Israelites to be his people. And, and, and in going out to the Israelites, it shows that he, has, he had compassion for them as he looked on their burdens. Moses shared in their suffering. He felt the pain of the injustices exacted upon them. You know, it's worthwhile asking, why would Moses do something like that? You know, why would Moses forsake the good life in Egypt and throw in his lot with this downtrodden, forsaken people? You know, the letter to the Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, not by sight, but by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater reward or greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Basically, Moses chose to leave Egypt because he had faith in God's saving promises. He trusted God's saving promises, and he knew that looking at these promises by sight would not make sense. But he trusted that God was able to deliver in his time on those promises. You know, Egypt represents the world's allurements, the world's attractions. And living by faith and not by sight, Moses realized that this world is passing away along with his desires. You know, beloved, it's, 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 it's good to pause now and think about our own lives. Have we grown at ease in Egypt? Have we grown comfortable in Egypt? Or will we put our trust and hope in God? You know, who are we trusting in? in God or in this world? Will we give up trying to live our best life now in order to live by faith in Christ? You know, friends, God promises us eternal life and true gain if we trust in Him and become a part of His people. As Hebrews 11 says to us, Christ is greater wealth than the fleeting pleasures of sin than all the treasures that this world has to offer. Will we leave 
Egypt. You know, God's son, Jesus, he went out from the glories of heaven and he came to suffer and die for sinners like you and me. You know, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, just as Moses was not ashamed to identify himself with an oppressed and downtrodden people. Will we believe in Jesus who came to suffer for us? Will we share in his suffering? And will we also share in one another's suffering? Will we identify ourselves with one another by weeping with those who weep, by grieving with those who grieve, by mourning with those who mourn? Will we identify ourselves with persecuted Christians all around the world? You know, we live in a, in a comfortable country with little persecution. Will we identify ourselves with Christians who are suffering in most parts of the world? We pray for them. We count them as our brothers and sisters. Will we share in their shame and suffering? This is what Moses did by identifying himself with the Israelites. You know, so far, so good. You know, Moses shows faith. And then the passage goes on to say that he's, one day he, he went out and he saw an Egyptian severely beating a Hebrew. I, I think Moses probably got enraged. And then he decided, this, he made this fateful decision to kill the Egyptian. And, and the way the text portrays Moses' action, I, I don't think we're meant to emulate Moses on this point. Rather, I think the text seems to portray Moses' actions as one of premeditated murder. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. It seems to indicate that Moses perhaps waited in ambush for this Egyptian, waited for the opportune moment to take his life when there was no one around to witness, you know, this was revenge killing, not justice. You know, justice must not only be done, but seen to be done. True justice is open, it's transparent, and the punishment fits the crime. But, but here, Moses kills in secret. You know, I think it's obvious because that's why he hides the body. No, he hid the body because he didn't want his deed to be discovered. This was a secret killing. But the passage goes on to tell us that Moses was found out. In fact, the very next day, when Moses tried to mediate between two Hebrews, you know, one of them accuses him of murder. I, I think the, the lesson for us is plain that we, we can't bury our bodies, right? We can't bury our bodies. Our, our sin will be found out. Sooner or later, our sin will be found out. Sin cannot remain hidden. You know, when, when Pharaoh hears of it, he, he knows that Moses has committed treason. Right? He's turned against Egypt. He's sided with these oppressed slaves. And he wants to kill Moses, despite Moses being his grandson. He seeks to put Moses to death for treason and murder. Fearing for his life, Moses runs away, runs to Midian. You know, I wonder what was going through Moses' mind at this point. You know, it might have been really disappointing 
for Moses, who perhaps understood himself to be Israel's deliverer. He had tried to deliver Israel. Perhaps he thought that he was justified in killing the Egyptian as a way of rescuing the Israelites. But it's not God's plan that has failed at this point. Rather, Moses took matters into his own hands. But the ends do not justify the means. No, I think being pragmatic and doing something just because we think it works, you know, I think Moses thought killing this Egyptian might work in maybe setting off some revolt among the slaves which would then free them from Egypt. Maybe he thought that, but being pragmatic and doing something just because we think it works doesn't work. It makes us self-dependent and disobedient. You know, God's plan cannot be done man's way. Moses was trying to save God's people by his own works rather than trusting God to save them by his grace. But God does not have to rely on human effort or cleverness or strength to save his people. You know, God simply wants us to be faithful, to trust him, to wait on him for the results. As we heard again and again from Paul's letter to the Galatians, God saves us by grace alone, not by works. Basically, God fundamentally does not need our help. When we serve God, you know, how might we be relying on human wisdom and methods? How might we be trying to do things in our own strength, thinking that we can accomplish great things for God? You know, for example, when we share the gospel with someone else, you know, do we try to win an argument? Are we trying to manipulate some kind of response from the person? And when, when we get rejected, when the other person rebuffs us, do we get upset? Do we give up? Now, here are some signs that we may be trying to do God's plan our way. What, what are some signs? I think, number one, we, we don't pray. I think prayerlessness is a sign that we're trying to do things our way rather than God's way. You know, we don't pray because we think we can do it on our own. You know, I, I know I struggle with this. I, I don't pray as much as, as much as I should, thinking that I can just get things done on my own. Another sign that we rely on our own strength is that we get impatient and frustrated by the slow progress or by the apparent lack of results. You know, we're, we're always in a hurry to get things done, right? We're always in a hurry to get returns or results. And we get impatient when they're not forthcoming. Another sign is that we get discouraged easily when trials come. It's a sign that we're trying to do things in our own strength rather than trusting in God. We get discouraged, we get upset with people because we're trying to do things in our own strength and we see people as getting in the way of that. Even getting in the way of serving God, right? We kind of see them as obstacles rather than seeing them as people to love and to work with as we serve God. You know, on his own, Moses is powerless to redeem Israel. You know, not only is Moses rejected by the Egyptians, but he's rejected by his own people. They refuse to listen to him. 
right? This man says to Moses in verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Now, I think this statement from the man reveals a bit of how the Israelites are stubborn themselves, right? So, so they, have, they have issues too. You know, as we read later on in Exodus, these Israelites are stiff-necked, and, and, and this man kind of shows a bit of that here in this verse. But yet, his, his question is still a valid one. Since God had not yet appointed Moses to service at this point, God has not yet called Moses, but rather Moses has run ahead without being called. You know, has Moses forfeited his part in God's plan? You know, maybe there's something that we're wondering ourselves. You know, maybe we think our failures have disqualified us. You know, can God or will God still use us in His plan? Which brings us to point two. God's plan is to teach us God's way. Let me read from verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is, that, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. He gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You know, I think the truth of the matter is that none of us is qualified to serve God. None of us. But the good news is that God himself qualifies us to serve him. You know, it, it's vital for us to understand this because this really gets to the heart of the gospel. If, if we have been saved by grace, then we also serve by grace. Whoever God calls, He also justifies, He empowers, and He equips. And for example, the Apostle Paul himself recognized his own inadequacy when he asked in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things. And then he responds to his own question in the very next chapter when he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. And I think this helps, to under, helps us to understand what's going on in these verses with Moses. You know, God doesn't simply use us for His work, we are His work. We are His work. God works in us. I think that's His plan, to work in us. God, God's plan is to teach us God's way so that we see our need for Him. Hence, God reveals our weaknesses through our faults, through our failures. You know, God isn't done with Moses. In fact, He's just getting started with Moses. Moses flees from Egypt to the land of Midian, and the Midianites were descended from Midian, 
who was one of Abraham's sons through his other wife, Keturah. And the land of Midian is a desert region. It's a wilderness. So to, to prepare Moses to lead his people to the promised land through the wilderness, God first leads Moses into the wilderness. You know, Moses' own journey parallels Israel's exodus from Egypt, you know, making him especially suitable for the task of leading God's people through the wilderness to the promised land. You know, beloved, I wonder if we realize that our failures, our faults, <clears throat> our difficulties, our seeming detours in our lives are not aimless. Our, our sufferings and setbacks are God's tools to sanctify us, to shape us for service. You know, for example, if, if we have experienced God's help through suffering, through our trials, I think we can better empathize with <coughs> and encourage others in tough times. You know, God uses suffering to soften our hearts especially towards others. Suffering shouldn't make us bitter and resentful, but suffering is meant to make us more understanding, patient, and gentle with others who are hurting because we understand what it means to hurt. As it says in that famous hymn, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not, de- shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. You know, it's mentioned that Moses sat down by a well, verse 15. You know, perhaps the mention of the well is meant to help us recall previous instances of God providing for his people at wells. Abraham's servant, for example, found a wife for Isaac when he met Rebekah at the well. Jacob met his future wife, Rachel, at the well. Moses, likewise, meets his wife, Zipporah, at the well. So those of us who are single, I don't know what that means, but there it is. But I think the takeaway lesson is God is still at work in Moses' life. You know, his failure has not derailed God's plan. You know, when the daughters of the priests of Midian show up at the well, you know, or rather priest, yeah, the, this priest's name is Ruel or Jethro, as is known in other parts of Exodus. They come to draw water from the well, and then some shepherds, you know, we don't know who these shepherds are, but some shepherds drive the woman away. Right? But Moses, although he's just one man, you know, he, he boldly stands up to the shepherds. And despite his setbacks, Moses hasn't become jaded or disillusioned. You know, Moses is still a man who cares about righteousness and justice. Moses is still a man who cares about the welfare of the oppressed. So Moses stands up to these shepherds and he saves the daughters of Ruel. And in doing so, Moses reflects God's character. What, what kind of God do we worship Deuteronomy 10 tells us, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial, takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless 
and the widow, he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Our God loves especially those who are marginalized. He loves the weak, the oppressed, the forgotten, the forsaken, the downtrodden. And, and, and Moses, in standing up for these women at the well, shows that he reflects the character of this God who upholds the rights of the oppressed. This God fights for justice. He, he fights for, for, for loving those who are unloved. You know, I, I think these, Mo, Moses shows us that we, we too should reflect God's character by loving and serving the weak, the vulnerable, and the hurting. You know, how, how are we upholding justice wherever we are? At home, the way we parent our children, in the workplace, as we uphold righteousness and justice in the face of wrongdoing by bosses, perhaps, you know, how are we upholding righteousness and justice? You know, this is our calling as God's people. And Moses shows us what it means to reflect God's character. And, and there's a difference from Moses now and what happened in Egypt. You know, unlike his previous use of violence, I, I think Moses shows some restraint here in how he deals with the shepherds. You know, he doesn't kill them, but simply drives those bullies away. I think Moses is beginning to understand that to serve others, strength needs to be tempered with self-control. I think Moses has also learned humility. You know, his Egyptian education may have prepared him for worldly prominence and power, but here Moses stoops to serve. How? By watering Midian's, uh, by watering Ruel's flock. You know, this was a lowly and laborious task that involved hauling a lot of water from the well. And Moses does that. You know, he does that for the daughters of Ruel. Moses learns to lead by learning to serve. I think that's a word for us who have responsibilities of leading here in this church. We, we learn to lead by learning to serve. And God brings us through trials to humble us, and to make us more servant-minded. God uses tough times to undermine our pride, to undermine our self-sufficiency. And God is preparing Moses to be his people's deliverer. And just as Moses delivered Ruel's daughters from the shepherds, so he will deliver Israel from Egypt. Moses is still God's chosen servant to accomplish God's plan. You know, does this scandalize us? You know, does this offend us? You know, are we scandalized by God's grace that even a murderer can be forgiven? You know, as long as we cling on to even the smallest self-righteous notion that we can somehow earn God's favor, we will ever be offended by God's grace. We will think God's grace as seemingly unfair that murderers should get grace. But if God was merely fair, then all of us deserve His righteous judgment against us. But praise God. Praise God that He is not merely fair, 
but He abounds in grace and mercy. You know, more than a thousand years later, God will call another man who also had blood on his hands to serve Him. Paul persecuted Christians, but God saved him and set him apart to serve as an apostle. Now, friends, do we confess that we have blood on our hands? You know, do we confess that we are guilty sinners? Now, if you do, if you know yourself to be a sinner, if you can come before God and say, yes, God, and I, I, I may not have physically killed someone, but yes, I have the blood of sin on my hands. Now, if we come to God and acknowledge that we are guilty sinners, there is good news for us. Because Scripture tells us that Jesus came precisely to save sinners. And Moses himself experienced the grace of God. Paul himself experienced the grace of God even to the chief of sinners. Surely we can also experience the grace of God if we confess, yes, guilty as charged, but there's forgiveness and grace found in Christ. You know, Ruel is surprised when his daughters return home early. He expects them to be delayed by the troublemaking shepherds, so this probably happened quite regularly for them. So the daughters reply, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. You know, given his appearance, the daughters think Moses is an Egyptian, and in their excitement, they forget common courtesy and they leave Moses standing on his own by the well. Well urges his daughters to show hospitality to Moses. And even in this, you see God's gracious provision for Moses through well, and not just a meal, but subsequently also marriage and a family. Moses marries Zipporah and they have a son. And Moses names him Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew for sojourner. So even as he lives in the land of Midian, Moses is still very much aware that he is still in exile, away from home. But, but I don't think Moses is thinking about Egypt as his home. Rather, he has learned through suffering to long for the promised land, to long for that true home, Canaan. And he longs to be with God's people. And he understands himself to still be in exile while he's away from them. You know, these verses portray Moses as a deliverer. He delivered Ruel's daughters from the shepherds. He will also lead Israel out of Egypt. You know, Moses will do the extraordinary. But I think it's interesting here in these verses, he must first learn to be content in the ordinary. You know, Moses has to learn to wait on God amid the mundane moments of marriage, amid the mundane moments of raising a family, amid the mundane moments of work. Shepherding his father-in-law's flock taught Moses how to feed, defend, and rescue the lost sheep of Israel. Now, I wonder if Moses thought that life had passed him by. Now, yet, God's plan hasn't been put on hold. He's still working in Moses' life. He's just calling Moses to wait on him. 
Now, beloved, how is God teaching us to be content in the ordinary? You know, maybe that's a difficult command for some of us, to be content in the ordinary. To be content, whether it's at school, or at work, or in our families, in our marriages. How is God calling us to be content in the ordinary? You know, how is God training us to be patient as we wait on Him and to be faithful amid the mundane day-to-day of life? Waking up in the morning, going to work, coming home, doing it again and again. You know, God wants us to trust and obey Him in the small things, in the ordinary things, in the mundane things, so that He can entrust us with bigger things. I think maybe this passage speaks to our sense of discontentment. You know, perhaps many of us struggle to be content. You know, we always think work should be better, or marriage can be better, this can be better, and, and, and we're not content. Are we content to wait on God and to trust Him, even if things are not ideal in the moment? Which brings us to our last few verses of our passage. God's plan will be done God's way. Let me read from verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, how long are we prepared to wait for God? I think what's interesting about our text is that time is really compressed in these verses. Do you realize that? Between, between verse 10 and 11, 40 years pass. Between verses 22 and 23, another 40 years pass. So in, in our text today, 80 years have passed. 80 years have passed. Moses lived in Midian for 40 years before God called him at the burning bush that we'll hear from in our sermon next week. You know, one Christian writer said it well. He said, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. You know, this is a humbling reminder that God's timetable is so different from ours. You know, we, we often crave instant gratification. We often crave instant success. You know, we want results and returns yesterday. But unlike us, God is not in a hurry. You know, God does not rush about impatiently. God's plan will be done in God's ways, even if it takes 80 years. During those 40 years that Moses lived in Midian, the Pharaoh who had commanded the killing of Israel's sons died. I I think it's a timely reminder to us that earthly kings come and go. But this God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. He will outlive any earthly king. He is above all earthly powers and unfailingly works out His plan. He changes times and seasons He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 2. Egypt's new king 
retains the same harsh policies towards the Israelites. As the popular saying puts it, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Groaning under the crushing burden of slavery, the people of Israel, you know, we, we hear them crying out for help. You know, I think waiting is hard, especially when life is tough and we're suffering. You know, often in those circumstances, the only thing we can do is to cry out for help. And I think verse, verses 24 and 25 are perhaps one of the, two of the most encouraging verses that we'll read in all of Scripture. You know, like, like the psalmist, you know, we, we don't have to be afraid to cry out to God for help and to even ask Him, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But even as we ask, we ask not in anger but in faith. We may not be able to make sense of our circumstances, but we can trust our loving and wise God to work all things for our good in His time. We can be faithful wherever God has placed us, even if it's not where we want to be. I think Dr. Polson was a wonderful example of that. You know, he, was supposed to be in, he was supposed to go to Indonesia, but he wasn't able to. So what did he do? He was simply faithful here. Since God called him to be here, I think we can do the same as well. We may not be where we want to be, but we can be faithful wherever God has placed us. And we can say to God, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And why can we say that with confidence? You know, what gives us the assurance that what we wait for is not simply wishful thinking? Our confidence is founded not on our circumstances, but upon God's character. He is a sovereign, faithful, covenant-making, and covenant-keeping God. Uh, friends, if we know this God, we, we know that we can trust Him. We know that we can hope in Him. His steadfast love can never fail. With Him is plentiful redemption. And God will save in the fullness of His time. Here is a call for us to be patient as we wait on God. You know, Moses was 80 years old. For those of us who are 80 years old, I think it's heartening to know that Moses was 80 years old when God called him. And in fact, more than 400 years have passed since God's covenant promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. You know, as Peter reminds us in 2 Peter, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. You know, in much of Exodus 1 and 2, God has been in the background, saving in surprising ways, as we heard last week, saving through the suffering of the Israelites, saving through the lowly and humble midwives, saving through the birth of this ordinary boy, this son, Moses. But verses 24 and 25 turn our focus on God. God now comes into the foreground in verses 24 and 25. And, and then we realize that this God has been working all along. 
He knows and loves His people. You know, if, if you desire comfort and consolation as you wait, meditate on verses 24 and 25. God hears, He remembers, He sees, and He knows. What an encouraging two verses. This God takes the initiative to save so we can cry out to Him for help. You know, these four precious action words in verses 24 and 25 are used to emphasize for us God's faithfulness to His promises in Genesis. God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows. You know, you would, you know this is fruitful meditation, even for you the rest of today. You know, think about how God hears, remembers, sees, and knows. Give thanks to Him for how He's done that for you in the past. Pray that you continue to trust Him to do that for you in the future. You know, in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham promising to save Israel from slavery and to bring them to the promised land. Now, God is about to put His plan of redemption in motion. All this while, for 80 years, God has been preparing Moses for ministry and he will soon call Moses to action. Now, beloved, we have the benefit of living on this side of Christ's coming. And we know that the story doesn't end with the Exodus. And in the fullness of time, God faithfully kept his covenant with Abraham by sending his son, Jesus, to save sinners. Christ came to do God's plan, God's way. And he did the surprising thing by dying. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins that we might be forgiven and brought back to God. And Jesus rose from the dead in victory, redeeming us, freeing us from our slavery to sin and death. Jesus hears, He remembers, Jesus sees, and Jesus knows. If we repent and trust in Him, he is faithful to save us. And the story isn't over. We're still in this story because we're still waiting. We are still waiting for Jesus to one day return for us. And because of what He has done, we know that our waiting will not be in vain. But in the meantime, we groan as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We long for the day when hope is fulfilled when faith turns to sight and we share in Christ's glory. God's plan will be done in God's way. Let's wait for Him, beloved. Let's wait for Him. We are bound for the promised land.